I didn't know Izzy was going to sing so much about the second coming when I prayed that. But I thought when I was praying, that was just so cool. And, and imagining if, what if God just came back right now in the middle of worship when I opened my eyes and I don't even know what I would see, but it would be amazing, I'm sure. So it's just always something to look forward to when Christ will literally return at the last trumpet sound and we'll all be caught up together with him to be with him forever. I look, I look forward to that. But yet in my heart, I'm sure like the Apostle Paul, and you guys might think the same way as you're torn of those who would be lost for all eternity when that happens. So we continue to pray for our loved ones, friends, and family, co-workers, um, that God would come in a certain way to them and to their lives so that they might see him and know him as Lord and Savior so that when he does return, they would be gathered together with him, with all the church. Let's pray for that. Lord God, we uh, thank you so much for that great promise of your return. We look forward to that day when we will see you face to face. But Lord God, we pray for our friends and family and loved ones, co-workers and neighbors. Lord God, for the entire world that doesn't know you. We pray, Lord God, that you would come into their lives and reveal yourself to them so that they might come to know you as Lord and Savior. Until that day happens, Lord, may we continue to stand strong in the faith, be rooted and grounded in your word. May we love one another. So help us to do that, Lord. And we ask that you would teach us this morning as we open your word and show us who you are and who we are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to look at a, at a, at a passage of scripture that helps us a little bit understand the temple of God. You know, when you think of the temple of God, you might think, I don't know about you, like the ancient temple of Israel that no longer exists. But sometimes you might think of church. And it prompted me to, to ask myself some questions as we look at this morning's study. And I ask yourself, what is church? What do you as individuals expect when you come to church? Expect to happen, expect to see uh, do you carry yourself differently when you walk in here than, than you do out there? Uh, should you? Should we be dressed a certain way for church? I know in, in certain denominations, uh, half of us we may be stopped at the door. <laughs> uh, they might even inspect to make sure you have the right Bible. Uh, you know, it can only be King James. Uh, but is that what church is? Is it all the outward appearance? Is it all hymns? Is it no, uh, no instruments? I think as we look at this morning's text, I hope you will find some answers there. Obviously, on my part and, and the church leadership, we believe church is more than just outward appearance. You know, whether you wear flip-flops or shorts or hat, it's about the heart. And I think you'll see that this morning as we look at uh, a section of Scripture where Jesus cleanses the temple of God. And what he has to say and what he demonstrates will answer, I think, uh, hopefully will answer all those questions. And not only that, will I think will help us understand who we are as individuals and as the church collectively. So let's look at this morning's Scripture. It's verses 13 through 25. Let's read through it, and then we'll come back and talk and highlight a few points. So the Apostle John writes, The Passover of the Jews was near, 
And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of, the, of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. But Jesus said on his part, excuse me, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So here we have the first account, what I believe, of Jesus cleansing the temple. I believe in the the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's another episode of Jesus cleansing the temple. You remember that? But it's at his Passion Week that he does it. Here the Apostle John has it at the very beginning of his ministry. And there's many commentators and theologians who debate, was it one episode, two episodes? Did John just move his episode to make a point? Or has it actually happened twice? I believe it happened twice, and there's no reason why it could not. We see throughout the Old Testament that God had to cleanse the temple over and over again with the kings. And so... Uh, For a number of reasons, I believe this is the first time that Jesus cleanses the temple, and then later he has to cleanse it again, and that's the record that we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Jesus is going up to the Passover. We see that in verse 13, into Jerusalem. And the Passover, as you know, is the annual festival commemorating God's deliverance of the nation of Israel from Egypt, out of slavery. And so every year... Jews from all around the world would come to Jerusalem and they would have a big celebration commemorating what God had done. So this was a huge celebration going on. And Jesus comes, being a a faithful, devout Jew, to celebrate the Passover. And this is where we run into the, the first problem of what's happening here. Look at verse 14. And he found in the temple... Those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changing, money changers seated at the tables. Now, those people that were there, that is not the problem. They were needed. As I had mentioned, there are people traveling from all over the world to bring sacrifices, to worship the Lord God at the temple. There was only one temple, and that was in Jerusalem. So a lot of them couldn't carry the animals, maybe caravanning with friends. They didn't have the animals. So when they got to the temple, they would purchase them there. So there's nothing wrong with that. Right? The outward appearance is okay. There's sheep and oxen being sold. 
it doesn't look like that's the issue. The issue happens to be is that what's going on inside the people's heart that are there selling those things. You see, God sees beyond the external and sees the heart, the true problem with what is going on. And that's why I said at the beginning, it doesn't really matter, I believe, you know, how you come to church. I know some people be like, oh, you know, you should wear a tie. And, you know, I, I grew up watching Little House on the Prairie. That was my mom's, I think, favorite show. And they always wore their Sunday best. You remember that? They would all dress up and sit quietly in church and listen to a Reverend Baker? No. Anybody? It was Dr. Baker, I think. I don't know. He was a reverend of some sort. I blocked that out, I guess. I don't know. But I just remember they always were dressing up, and it was a big deal. The whole family rode together to church. And so they were all dressed up. But again, it's not how you look on the outside. It's what's going on in inside. Now, if you want to dress up, that's great. I have a friend of mine. Uh, he bought me a couple of ties because he thinks, hey, pastor, you know, you should speak about dressing up in church. And I said, well, when I come to that text in the Bible, I'll do that. Thanks for the ties. I'll wear those at a funeral or something like that. <clears throat> Anyways, so the point being, Jesus sees beyond that, beyond the external. Even the good things that these people were doing, there was nothing wrong with them selling things to the pilgrims who were coming to Jerusalem to worship. It was what was going on inside their hearts. And look at verse 15. And this is where we come to Jesus seeing that the temple basically has been defiled. That's the problem. He thinks, or he doesn't he think, he knows the temple's been defiled in a certain way. Look at verse 15. And he made a scourge of cords. That's a whip. And he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. So he drove, he drove all the merchandisers out with the animals, the sheep and oxen. He drove them out of the temple courts. Now, they weren't inside the building, temple, temple. You know, the temple had an outside court, which was called the court of the Gentiles, where everybody was allowed to come in. And that's where they would set up shop and they would be selling. It'd be like if someone sat out in the foyer and, you know, we were like selling uh, Bibles to everybody, but like at extraordinary prices. The Bible's already pretty expensive, which is, amazes me, but uh, that's a different thing. I, I likened it to going to a sporting event. Like where the, the water is like $6 for a bottle of water. I'm like, dude, I can buy two big 24 things for that. I'm sticking a few in my pocket before I go into the, the stadium. It's just crazy how much it costs at stadiums. You know, they overcharge. Disneyland, if you buy food, it's like $100 for two hamburgers. So I think that's what's going on here in the temple is they were overcharging the pilgrims that were coming in. That were pilgrimaging, not think of pilgrim, pilgrim, 16th century pilgrim. Those who were coming to Jerusalem, the Jewish people. And look at what he says. This is why he says in verse 16, and those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So they had got Worship upside down. It was more about business than worship. It was more about business than learning about God. It was more about business than prayer. Maybe you've been to some churches like that before. 
where it's all about production and show rather than worship and, and the study of God's word and prayer. We have to be careful of that. Making merchandise to keep this big organization keep going. We have to keep fueling it. We have to be careful as leaders and, and workers and pastors and of the church that we don't make God's house a place of business. Because in a sense, this is God's house where we congregate to come and worship together. We'll talk about that a little bit more. So Jesus was saying, you guys have become greedy and you're exploiting the worshipers of God. Unfortunately, there are pastors and preachers who are exploiting the worshipers of God for their own gain. And that's what these leaders were doing here in the temple. And Jesus saw beyond that. Again, it's a reminder that Jesus sees beyond the external. If you drop down to verse 23 and 25, we're not going to touch much on it, but this is an example of where he, Jesus, sees beyond the external. Look at this. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem, this is at the end of our text, at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. So Jesus did more signs, as John tells us at the end of his gospel, and even this, that he did more signs than, than what is recorded. And it says, many people believed on his name, which is interesting. He's like, I believe in Jesus, just his name, to a certain extent. That goes on today. People believe in the name of Jesus. But look at what it says. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for for he knew all men. See, even though someone says, I believe in Jesus, Jesus doesn't reveal himself to them because he really knows their heart. And here again in our text, Jesus sees beyond the selling of religious sacrifices and worship. He sees that there's greed and exploitation going on. It reminds me of the prophet Amos. In, in a very, uh, a very like graphic depiction of what God sees in worshipers. Turn with me to the book of Amos. That's a, a minor prophet. He's always one of those hard ones to find because you flip a few pages and you miss them. But Amos chapter five, in starting in verse twenty-one, the prophet speaking on God's behalf is really condemning the worshipers at the temple. Look at what he says. He says, I hate. That's a a strong word. I hate, and I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. So here's the nation of Israel gathered together at the temple in the book of Amos, and they're worshiping, they're praying, they're celebrating the festivals of God, but God says, I hate them. He rejects them, and he doesn't delight in them. He says, even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offering of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. Why? Look at verse 24. So they had all the outward appearances of religious life, worship, sacrifices, celebrating the festivals of God. He says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. 
So there was no justice in the land. There was no righteousness in the land. He says, did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years? Reminding them of their ancestors. O house of Israel, you also carried away Sitkuth, your king, and Kilion, your images. This is the problem. Look, they carried away their images and the stars of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So outwardly, they're worshiping God, but inside, God sees that they have idols that they're really, truly worshiping. And so he says, take away from me all this filth, this fake worship, this fake celebrating, this fake music and prayers, because I don't delight in them, because you really don't believe in me. You're just going through the motions. And again, Jesus sees this going on in the temple of our text. Again, them bringing doves and oxen and sheep to the temple was not the bad thing. It's that they were exploiting all those who made the pilgrimage to worship God. And they were turning God's house into a place of business. It was no longer designed to be what it was, what it was designed to be. Which is what? What was the temple of God designed to be? Number one, it was a place where God would meet his people. When God established a tabernacle in the book of Exodus, and he established specifically the Holy of Holies, he told Moses that that is where he will be to meet his people. He will dwell there in the Holy of Holies. That was the most sacred place. Even though God was the God of all the universe, it was in this one area where God says he will reveal himself to men. And it only happened once a year. As a matter of fact, when he first filled the the tabernacle and then later when Solomon built the temple, the people had to leave. They couldn't even stand before God because God was so holy. It's like trying to look at the sun. Have you ever tried to look at the sun? You can't do it very long. You know, I try. I have a, one bad eye. This is why I wear glasses. Like I just, I can't. I could barely, I could barely see Yahweh with my right eye. But, my, and I try to like stare at the sun. Well, maybe my bad eye. Maybe it will help me see better. <laughs> Even then, I'm just like totally blinded, and that's probably why I'm blind. I stare at the sun too long. But imagine that's how God's glory is in a certain extent. People are like, "Whoa, dude!" It's It's too bright. They have to leave. And many prophets, when they were encountered God, they just fell down like dead men, it said. They couldn't be in the presence of God. And so that's how Jesus sees the temple of God. This is where God has come down to meet man. It was a place where God would meet his people. That's what the temple of God was. Secondly, the temple of God was designed to be a place of worship. This is where Israel came and celebrated and worshiped God at festivals. Not only that, it was a place God's people came to offer prayers. Incense was offered up to God. It's described the incense as like the prayers of the saints. So they used that during the worship ceremonies, symbolizing the prayers. It was a place where they went because God was there. And they worshiped, and they sung, and they prayed to God. This is what the temple of God was. It's no different than what church is, right? We come, although God is everywhere, in a certain sense, we come here to meet with God, to pray, 
to God, to worship God. And as you know, he's like, I could do that anywhere, right? But the New Testament church is also called to assemble together. That's what the temple of God was designed to be. And lastly, we don't have time to go into this, but I'll give you a, a, just a, an idea of what it is. The temple was a place that would direct people to worship God, the God of the universe. People would see the temple, and it would just be extravagant. It's kind of like a middle, medieval uh, cathedrals, the way they designed them with the windows up high and just extraordinary things. It was kind of a, a, to help you focus on God. Like, wow, look how big this is, and this is how awesome it is. This is how God must be awesome. So all, if you go through like the Old Testament and if you've ever read through some of like the design, the curtains and the curtain rods and the door jam, and you, you kind of, that's where you like try to read the Bible through a year and you hit that part and you're like, whew, this is tough reading. But when you read that all those things were designed in a specific way to point to God. I remember reading a, one commentator and he was describing the curtains, how they had these little glimmering pieces of gold in it and it was a picture of supposed to be a picture of the sky the universe where god dwells so just a a little thing next time you read through those things think of all those things are designed specifically to help israel think of god so even at church all that we do within a church should be helping our congregants you and me to be focused on god from the worship and the prayer to the teaching. Everything should help us focus and point us to the God of the universe. So God's temple was being defiled because it wasn't being used the way it was supposed, supposed to be. It was supposed to be. It was supposed to point people to God. Be a place where people could come and pray and worship. And think of this. If you were coming to the temple and you had to buy an ox or, a, or a, a dove to offer as a sacrifice, and you were being gorged for all the money that you had, you might be a little upset, and you might not be focusing on God anymore. Jesus over and over condemned the religious leaders for making it hard for people to follow God. And this is just one example where they did it, and that's why Jesus was so upset. He's like, you're making my house, or the Father's house, a place of merchandise. Because I would just uh, direct you to Ezekiel 8 sometime when you get a chance. Read that because God takes Ezekiel on this vision and he shows Ezekiel how the temple of God is being defiled even back then. So a number of times God houses, God's house is defiled over and over again. And it's just amazing the things that are going on. He sees the leaders of Israel worshiping false idols in the temple of God. So the problem again is God's temples being defiled. And so Jesus drives everybody out and says, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of business. And he cleanses it. Let's look at verse 17 now. He says, and his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the purpose of Jesus cleansing the temple is number one, is that Jesus was correcting false worship. And I don't want to miss that. Now, because worship against is not solely external, although it should be. We should sing and worship 
show some reverence and respect for God. But that's not the sole uh, thing that says, hey, I'm a worshiper of God because I, I dress up and I hold my Bible and I sing to God and I pray and I, I raise my hands. All that is, is great if that's what you're called to do, but that doesn't mean you're really worshiping God. And so Jesus here is cleansing the temple, showing them what real worship is, that it's not just external. Remember, later he tells uh, the woman at the well that, that worship of God, true worship, is in spirit and in truth. It's not where, where you go, it's how you do it. So although she's like, do we worship God in here or do we worship him over there? No, there's going to be a time because he was going to destroy the temple, basically, is what he's alluding to, is that people that worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not just external. As a matter of fact, later he condemns people for worshiping God just with their lips and not honoring them with their heart. In one of the Gospels, Jesus. So he's correcting false worship. It's external and internal. Both must be done. So the purpose of Jesus cleansing the temple was, number one, he was correcting false worship. And he wanted everybody to see that. Which leads me to my second point of purpose for Jesus cleansing the temple was Jesus was warning those who were watching. Because although he specifically was speaking to the religious leaders and the sellers of these things, weren't there a bunch of people there from all over the world watching? As a matter of fact, that's why I read verse uh, 17 when I just started. Because the disciples saw this, and what did they do? They remembered what the Scripture said. Hey, the Scripture said that Messiah would come and he would have a zeal for God's house. They're still trying to figure out in a certain sense, is Jesus really the Messiah? Even though they're following him, they learn it more and more each time he does a miracle, each time that he does a teaching. And here it is. They remember what the scripture said, that zeal for your house will consume me. And so as Jesus corrects one person, other people are watching. Right? Don't we think that as parents, when we correct or discipline one of our children, we hope that the other children are watching knowing, oh, you can't get away with that. I'm going to write that down. I'm not going to do that this time. We hope that they learn. Even Scripture says that it was written for our benefit so that we would not do what the people in the Old Testament did, that we would learn from it. So Jesus, in one sense, is correcting, and he wants everyone to see this. The correct way to worship God is not just external, it's also internal. So Jesus was warning those who were watching Thirdly, the purpose for his cleansing the temple was Jesus was giving a sign to everybody that he was the Messiah. First, the disciples see that, hey, this may be the Messiah because he's fulfilling the scriptures of the Old Testament or the only scriptures that they had at that time. So he was demonstrating this. And again, remember, we started our series off by reading uh, in John chapter 20 that or maybe even 21. I think it's 20, though. John was saying, hey, the reason I wrote this gospel is so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ and know that you have eternal life. So, G- so John chooses his stories that he writes in the gospel to prove that point. And that's what he's doing here. He's proving that Jesus is the Messiah that the prophets had talked about. And by doing that, he shows the disciples remembering Scripture. And Jesus is doing things 
that the Old Testament prophets talked about that Messiah would do when he came. Let me give you another example. Turn with me to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. Now that's the last Old Testament book, so that's easy to find. Malachi chapter 3, right before Matthew. Look at verse 3, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 4. And remember, we've read this earlier because we alluded to John the Baptist as being that messenger that goes before the Messiah who's supposed to come. He calls himself the messenger. Look at verse, uh, verse 1, Malachi chapter 3. So God says through Malachi, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. So that's John the Baptist, right? We're all on the same page here. John the Baptist was the messenger, as we've been saying, that goes out before the Messiah, God. And the Lord whom you seek, look at this, will suddenly come to his temple. This is what John is showing. Jesus enters into his ministry, and all of a sudden he's in the temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? And this is exactly what he does. Look at the re- last part of this sentence. For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purify the silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi, those are the priests, and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present the Lord's offering in righteousness. This is what Jesus is doing. He's coming to the temple. He's cleansing the temple like a soap, like a fire. Showing them what real worship is, that you worship God in righteousness so that the Levites might worship God in true righteousness. And then he concludes by saying in verse 4, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. That's an Old Testament prophecy. Speaking of the first coming of the Messiah, remember John was that messenger that cleared the way for the Messiah and here he comes into the temple showing the religious leaders and everybody else who's there what real worship is supposed to be. It is not what these guys are doing. And he, throughout the Gospels, this is what Jesus does, showing everybody what true worship is. So the purpose of this cleansing, again, was for correcting false worship, was warning those who were watching. He was giving a sign to everybody that he was the true Messiah. And then something else in verses 19 through 21, Jesus says something that they don't get right away. Remember, I mentioned this last week when Jesus would say something, there's the literal meaning of it. And then there's this underlying meaning and not everybody got it all the time. And this is what happens in verse uh, 20. Look at verse 20. The Jews then said, oh no, let's back up, I'm sorry. Verse 19. 18, sorry. Verse 18. I'm keeping you focused. You can't just hear me. You have to look at the word. Verse 18. The Jews then said to him, so after he cleanses the temple, the Jews are like, hey, what's going on? Usually in the Gospel of John, when it says the Jews, he's talking about the religious leaders, probably the Sanhedrin. So it's not all the Jewish nation, just so you don't get that idea. So the Jews then said to him, what, do you, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Like, 
who told you you could do this? What sign are you going to show us that you have authority to do this? Even though he just turned the water into wine, and now he cleansed the temple, that's not a good enough sign for them. Think of those people in your life that say, if God would just show me a sign, and they've already been shown sign after sign after sign. No, no, show me something else. So they say the same thing. This is the sign that Jesus, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So they're thinking, obviously, by the next sentence, that how are you going to do that to this temple? That's what they say, right? Then the Jews said to him, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. This massive temple is going to be destroyed, and you're going to fix it in three days, Jesus. That's a miracle. But verse 21 says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, they didn't get that, and, and probably none of I wouldn't get that either. We're just seeing, we're in the temple, we see the temple, we're probably thinking, that's crazy if he can do that. And John gives this little comment, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. And verse 22 so, says, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. So the disciples probably didn't understand it either. It wasn't until later when Jesus had rose from the dead that they remembered, just like they remembered earlier about the scripture, Jesus said this. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about. And says they believed in him even more. Their faith continued to grow and grow in God. So Jesus was saying to them, is that I'm the temple. This temple soon will no longer exist. Why? Because the temple represented the old covenant. Just like the wine that we talked about last week, remember? He, he made new wine. It's the new covenant. That's that underlying message of Jesus. He, has a, 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 he says these things to him. People don't get it. Only those who God's eyes open get it. And the disciples were one of those people that got that. So Jesus is saying, I'm the temple of God. This is what John is telling us. I'm the new temple of God. This no longer is going to hold the significance that it once did. So how does he do that? How does Jesus show that he's the temple of God? Well, again, what did the temple of God do in the Old Testament? It pointed people to God. Didn't Jesus do that? Jesus pointed people to the Father over and over again. And think of all the things that were in the temple. And this is another thing to study in the Old Testament, all the, the, uh, the utensils and the building itself and the sacrifices. Don't all those things in the Old Testament point to what? To Jesus. This temple, in a way, was pointing to Jesus. The sacrifice that was made at the temple was pointing to Jesus. And so when Jesus offers his body as a sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb is no longer needed. Temple worship is no longer needed. He's taking that away. So the temple was pointing to Christ's office. And again, the temple was pointing us to God. Jesus has come. It is now pointing us to God. Jesus is the one who said that when you see me, you see the Father. Or if you know me, you know the Father. Everything that Jesus does was pointing to the Father, replacing the temple's importance. Not only that, we now worship God 
through Christ. When we come to Jesus, we can now worship the Father. We don't have to go to the temple anymore. It's, it's no longer needed. Not only that, we can pray to God through Christ. Remember Jesus in, in uh, John chapter 14, uh, verses 13 through 14. Let me read that real quick. John 14, verses 13 through 14. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We no longer need to go to the temple. We go to Jesus. And not only that, Christ directs all people to God. As I mentioned, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you know me, you've known the Father. The gospel writers show us that Jesus has replaced that old covenant. The new covenant has come. The new wine is here. The new worship is here. No longer do you worship God at this place or that place, but in spirit and in truth. That's the message of John showing us how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and he's completed those things that were pointing to him. But the Jews didn't believe that, as you'll see over and over again as we go through the Gospel of John. I want to show you one more thing in closing. So we have the temple of God. We have Jesus as the temple. But then when Christ ascends to heaven, he starts to build his church, which is considered what? The new temple of God. Because guess what? Each and every believer in Christ is considered a temple of God. Let me read this. There's a great verse in 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me read that to you. I don't think that's going to come up. I didn't give that to Andy, and I'm sorry. But 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Look at what it says. The Apostle Peter writes, In coming to him, meaning Jesus, as to a living stone which has been rejected by man, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, he's speaking to believers, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, speaking of the Old Testament. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve. The stone which the builder rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And the stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. The Apostle Peter is telling us that Christ is now building a new temple. A temple, he's saying, which you guys are. A new priesthood, spiritual sacrifices. Can you see the replacement of the Old Testament temple? being now fulfilled in the New Testament church. So when Christ ascended to heaven, he started to build his new church. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, that the Holy Spirit now dwells in us, and we are temples of God. Does he not say that? 1 Corinthians 6, or 3, I'm sorry. He says it in 6 too, but 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 Look at what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth. He says, do you not know you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Where did the Spirit of God dwell before Jesus Christ came? 
and the Holy of Holies. The glory of God filled the temple. He's saying, and now that that was ripped, remember when Christ died, the, the curtain was ripped. That was the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies. And now he's saying, Christ dwells, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Each and every believer, you're holy. Imagine that. It's hard to imagine that the Spirit of God dwells in me and you. Because we know who we are, right? We're, we're like not that great of a people if we think about it. We're, we're sinful people. We're not this holy edifice like the temple of God that we think of, that we should be. But yet the Spirit of God happily dwells in us because of what Christ has done. Honestly, as I was studying this, it kind of revolutionized my thinking of who I am and how I look at people. That's the temple of God. That's my sister, my brother, temples of God. I should treat them with respect. I should treat myself with a lot more respect. I should act differently. The holy God of the universe, his spirit dwells in me. That's amazing to think about. It's almost uncomprehendable that God will reside in me and you as believers. But he does. The Apostle Paul says that. Then look at verse uh, chapter, uh, verse 6. Look at 19 through 20. Look at what he says. He says, do you not, uh, yeah, verse 19, sorry. Or do you not know, he's reminding him, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own. Guess what, believers? We're no longer our own because God, what does he say? You have been bought with the price. Therefore, here's the application. Glorify God with your body. The application for this is if we're the temple of God and God considers us holy and he dwells in us, he's saying glorify God with your body. Each and every part of our body, our minds, our hands, our feet, and everything in between. We're a holy temple. Not only that, just like the temple of, of the, the literal temple of God. And we talked about all the things that what that was. We are that way too. So in a sense, God, will, God dwells in us like he dwelled in the temple. But not only that. We are called also to be in a constant state of worship. The temple of God was a place of worship. But guess what? We as individual believers are called to worship as well. Look at Hebrews 13, 15. It says, through him then, let us continually, that means always, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. The, old, the New Testament writers talk about the church in the way that it talked about. The Old Testament talks about the temple over and over again. And we don't have time to get into it. Sorry, I'm running late already, I know. But look at Revelation chapter 21 about the temple. It's interesting. It talks about the bride of Christ being the temple, and then it talks about a city being the temple. Read that for a while and blow your mind on that. That's the future. That's our future. Revelation 21, just so you know. But we're called to be in a constant state of worship, like the temple of God. If God dwells in us, then in a sense, we should always be aware of worship of our worship of God. 
Not only that, we should, aren't we called to pray without ceasing like people did in the temple? In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. That's what you did in the temple of God. That's what we now do as believers. We're in a constant sense of worship and prayer to our God. It doesn't mean you walk around praying all day long, but I think it's a mindset, a mind frame that we always have the ability to do that. We don't have to go to a temple to do it. Right there where we are, Izzy always tells us, you know, hey, worship doesn't stop here. It continues on. God's Spirit's already here. We don't need to, like, have him come here. He's always with us. We're at the temple of God already. And lastly, we are called to direct others to the God of the universe. Remember, the temple of God was designed in a certain way so that everybody would think of God when they saw it. It was a place where God met and people were directed to God. Guess what, believers? You and me, our church in general, collectively, but individually are called to direct other people to Christ. And I'll close with this last verse, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Here's an example of that, where Jesus said to all those who listened, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And he says this, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Each and every one of us who's a believer this morning, we are the temple of God where the Holy Spirit dwells. And we are called to be a witness to everybody at all times in all things that we do. As you can, uh, hopefully you understand, as I did this week, that kind of, we've heard that before, but as I was studying, I was like, I, I need to be different than the way I'm being. Am I glorifying God? Uh, I know my wife always reminds me, I, I coach soccer, and we're like 0-7, and, and, um, and it's hard to glorify God when you're 0-7. And, and she, she's texting me as I'm, I'm just yelling out commands to the little kids to get over, right? She's like, you're a pastor, you're getting a little loud. I'm like, well, they're way on the other side of the field. They don't hear me. That's So even then, I need to be reminded, okay, I, I'm a witness. They might not know I'm a pastor, and I try not to tell them so that I can. No, I'm just kidding. But I'm a witness even out on the soccer field with the little kids that are 0-6 or whatever we are. It really stinks lately, but <laughs> I'll get over it. But Mindy reminds me, you know what? You may be the only contact they have. It's like, yeah, of someone who's a believer. And so I need to, even in that instance, need to find ways to glorify God. Because we're the temple of God. The temple of God was meant to direct people to Christ or to the God of the universe. And that's what we're to do as individual believers. Let's pray. Lord God, we are... I know I am just so humbled at the thought of what you've made us, how you see us as holy and righteous before you because of what your son has done. Even though I know who I am and I know my brothers and sisters individually, we, we look at ourselves and know that we are less than perfect. We don't live up to your standards and we fail so many times. But despite that, Lord God, you've decided 
to make us holy and to use us for your glory. So may we live in an awareness of who we are in Christ, for we are the temple of God, where the Holy Spirit dwells in tabernacles, that we are called to a life of prayer and worship and witness to this world. May we be always aware of that in all that we do. But Lord God, may we also remember that you know who we are. You see our hearts, that we truly try to be those things. And even when we fail, you still love us. And you promise to forgive us of our sins if we confess them to you. So help us to do that this week as we leave this church. Help us to glorify you always, rejoice always, pray always, and be a witness always as we are your temples. And we pray this and ask for your help as we leave this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.